raise their hand and ask a question, please feel free to do so. This is not a monologue, this is a dialogue where we engage with each other to gain a better understanding of the sacred word. So if you would join me in the book of James, the book of James chapter five, we're going to read verse 17 and 18 as our base text. James chapter five, verse 17 and 18. And just for your assistance, first of all, the book of James is in the New Testament, not the Old. But when you get there, to the left should be the book of Hebrews, and to the right should be 1 Peter. Book of James, chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. Are we there? Amen. James chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. Amen. You may be seated. Silent killers living behind the mask. When I talk about silent killers, I'm referring to the maladies to which we often find ourselves where we mask them we hide behind them and we work tirelessly to prohibit anyone from recognizing them in our character. What enables us to connect to the life stories of those who are in the Bible is the very nature that is wrapped up in this phrase used in verse 17 to describe the internal existence for Elijah. He's a man that has a nature like we have. We often define biblical characters or either we look at them through a lens of believing that they are far beyond where we currently live or that they are persons to which we desire to attain their particular spirituality. When in reality, when you read the life of most, if not all, biblical characters, you find out that they are people of flaws, people who make mistakes, people who had shortcomings, people who struggle as you and I struggle. The fact that James puts Elijah in the writing of his book of the New Testament suggests that the ministry of Elijah drew enough credibility to be rated alongside 
his ancestors, that being Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and the list can go on. Because they too were men who struggled because they had a like nature. And when we talk about maladies, we talk about issues to which we have a very deep problem in trying to correct and we call them silent killers because we wrestle with them behind the scenes. Because we don't want anyone to detect as they look at us face to face that we are not a person who has everything together. We are not a person who crosses every T and dot every I. We are not a person who lives such a lifestyle that we trumpet that I am the example of authentic Christianity. We are people who are failing, who have fallen, who are disintegrating, who are struggling to keep it together and we live behind the mass so that when we come to worship, when we go to work, we want no one to recognize we are very fragile human beings. So we give a facade that we have it all together. When we know that once no one is looking and we are all alone, we're wrestling with whatever that malady might be. Elijah had a silent killer, and the silent killer was depression. Elijah the prophet suffered from depression. The great prophet of Israel suffered from depression. The prophet who went to Mount Carmel and defeated 450 plus prophets by calling on the name of the Lord later suffered from depression. And his depression is brought on by the threat of queen. Jezebel, because she lost the battle, was a sore loser and said to the prophet, this time tomorrow you will not be alive. Rather than the prophet remembering what the Lord God had done for him previously, the prophet sunk into depression. Now when we talk about depression, there are multiple definitions of what it might be but many professionals suggest to us that it's very difficult to define what depression is with a very precise definition because it's so multiplicit in its impact. Here's a simple definition that hopefully will help us. It's, it's an emotional condition, one that can be either neurotic or psychotic, which strongly suggests that it could be something that is happening to us because there is a chemical imbalance or it could be because something is happening to us environmental that's affecting us personally that it changes our whole composition of who we are 
and we end up being another person, i.e. sunk into a space of isolation. It eventually renders us, by its characteristics, feeling hopeless, feeling helpless, feeling inadequate, feeling gloomy, feeling dejected, masked by sadness, and finding it difficult to even think and concentrate, which eventually we move into a space of inactivity. Now don't think that depression is limited to people who are not followers of Jesus Christ. Because even Christians suffer from depression. I understand that you would like to believe that just because you know Jesus, you are exempt from all of those kinds of both neurotic and psychotic behaviors. But if you've noticed people who follow Jesus may be some of the most psychotic people you ever want to engage in. And it may be because of some form of chemical imbalance, or as my grandmama say, some people just flat out mean, and they haven't gotten any better even after following Jesus. Depression is a strange thing, and it happens to be reaping a great deal of havoc upon those of us in the United States of America Statistically, it says that those between the ages of 15 and 44, depression happens to be the, le the leading cause that leads to disabilities. I want you to think about the magnitude of that because that suggests that if I'm not thinking right or if I'm not feeling right, it will eventually from my natural mind have an effect upon my body function and it may lead me to some level of disability. And look at the age between 15 and 44, a significant period of existence where you can be perhaps most productive in your lifetime. That's where this attack seems to be occurring. Depression ranks among the top three workplace issues alongside family crisis and stress. Now understand the magnitude of that. Those who are responsible for human resources, those who are managers, those who are CEOs, those who basically are responsible to make sure that we have some sort of mentally stability on the job, says that depression is ranked right alongside suffering from a family crisis, the death of a loved one, the death of your partner, the death of your spouse, and stress could be imposed in the job itself that's stressful. Depression is right among those three. Persons who suffer from depression arguably says it costs the nation some 200, I got the number straight between services, 200 plus trillion dollars a year. That's a lot of money, only because they are generally unable to make contribution to the development of the nation economically because most persons who suffer depression rarely go get treatment.
And it may be because we've made depression look like such a mental health issue, and it is, but we've almost demonized it and told persons that if you're suffering from depression, maybe it's not the workplace you need to be in. In fact, you might just need to stay home until you get your act together. Which we argue that what happens to a person that sinks into that level of depression, they go home, they pull the shades, they close the drapes, lock the doors, and hope that nobody stops by. And if you knock, maybe after a couple of knocks and you recognize nobody's gonna answer the door, they move on and you stay in that condition while at the same time, you are blocking out what actually gives you energy, which is light. And we'd rather stay behind in the darkness because that's a space where our mental and emotional being has sunk into residing as normality darkness you listen carefully to the deacon's prayer how we are a nation now suffering from darkness it's a darkness in the soul and those persons who are struggling with that are behind the mask of darkness you may not be able to immediately detect that they've got something going on inside of them but if you give them the right opportunity as has been taken place you can eyewitness the result of their darkness, whether it is mass shooting or even being suicidal. Darkness is a real space. And unfortunately for us, we worked very hard, I think, at trying to make sure that everybody don't recognize us when they're living in a space of darkness. Even more frightening statistic, 51% of children between the ages of eight and 15 suffer from depression or some form of mental illness. That's a high number. And if that number is accurate, I am overwhelmingly concerned what lies for the future. Because if there are two children in the room and one of them is suffering from depression or some form of mental health, we have got to begin to think what's going to occur when those children become adults and their mental health or depression has not been met or treated and they will eventually become your congressmen, your senators, your physicians, your preachers, your school teachers. They'll become leaders of your community, and you have to wonder what kind of community would you have. We should be alarmed over that statistic if it is as accurate as it is portrayed. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for the ages of 15 to 44, often birth from depression. You should think about how critical that is because not all suicidal death comes out of non-Christian homes. There are people who love Jesus and come to church on Sunday morning and serve in ministries whose children commit suicide. 
and they commit suicide for a number of reasons. So what becomes the contributing factors to depression that eventually leads to suicide? For young people, I would contend, based on my own research, the number one thing is social media. As expressive and then as normal now as social media is in public life, it also can be very dangerous. Young people interact on social media like we used to interact on the telephone. That's what they do every day. Some people all day long. It's a space where they express themselves. What makes social media so dangerous is that when you meet people on social media and you never meet them, you just meet them on social media, but you never meet them and you become friends. The only problem is that person never really gets to know who you are because they never meet you. And when you post something and you don't get affirmation or you don't get confirmation to make you feel like you're on the right road, you very well could begin to sink into a space of depression. The other thing about social media is children can hide it from their parents unless you have access to their Facebook page and some of those other things. I don't know what, what they all got on social media. I, I don't do social media. I don't know a thing about it. I mean, I got a page. I don't know why. I don't, know, I don't do nothing with it. Every now and then I'll see somebody say something and I'll make a comment. That's about the best that I could do. But going out there every day, no. Too dangerous. And when young people sink into a space of depression, they shut out the world because they couldn't get what they wanted in the artificial world of social media. The second thing is peer pressure. Peer pressure will lead young people to depression because if they can't fit in, if no one will embrace them, if no one will accept them as they are, they'll feel like they're in the world all by themselves. And I'm not really sure that's really relegated to mere young people alone because I think there are some adults who need that same confirmation in their life as well. Relationships is a contributor to depression. A person who is shy, a person who does not have the aggressiveness that maybe others do in terms of meeting people, a person who's not as expressive, doesn't know how to express themselves in terms of sharing what their feelings are, meet this one person who knows how to draw out of them that which has been hidden or caged for many years. And then something happens and that person cuts that relationship off or disappears. And that young person will then consider not only sinking into depression, but suicide. Because they have yet to learn, like those of us who are older, that relationships are a part of life's journey. You meet some people, sometimes it work, sometimes it doesn't. When it don't, what do you do? Move on. Some of us got longer lists than others. Some of us got shorter lists. But we've at least learned, don't stay there. Because if you stay there, it can become addictive and being problematic. 
And what happens then is you become depressed because the one person that you thought was your life-changing individual you found out was human. Just like James says of Elijah, has a like nature. They suffer from problems like you do, like I do. There are a number of things that contribute to a person being depressed. My final one is religion. Religion is a contribution to people experiencing depression. And it's because we have taught a religion that's almost intolerable. Intolerable of understanding that people who follow Jesus are not perfect. That's why I celebrate that one line in verse 7 of James 5, of verse 17 of James 5, that Elijah is a man that has a like nature. Because Elijah shows me that even as the mighty prophet of God, he's a man that had a weakness. He has a struggle. And we teach people often that even when you're follow, if you're following Jesus, if you're praying right, living right, tithing right, doing everything else right, everything, not everything, everything, going to be smooth. Haven't you heard that before? Everything is going to work out. How many of you have lived long enough to know that in following Jesus, it don't always work out, at least not the way that I thought it was going to work out, and that every day is not as rosy as I desire it to be. Now, I'm also a believer that even though it's not rosy, I'm going to keep on keeping on in Jesus' name, and I'm going to be grateful that I'm alive to witness it's another day's journey. But the reality is it doesn't always work the way that I think it's going to work out. Sometimes it's bad. And I understand from religion that there are times when we even suppress people's emotion because we don't want them to recognize that being real actually helps you grow. So that's why I don't fall out when somebody cuts me out. I got it. I got it. I'm going to cuss you out too if it's in the right context. Yeah. Here's my point I'm trying to make to you. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a great Baptist preacher of the late 18th century. Spurgeon used to pastor the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London and every Sunday Spurgeon would mount his pulpit steps to go up to the podium and he would preach to masses. In fact, Spurgeon very well may be the earlier version preacher of megachurches, what we call megachurches. Spurgeon had a megachurch way back in the late 17, 1800s. He would go and preach to thousands, 10, 15, 20,000 on a given Sunday. Before we even had multiple services, Spurgeon was already having two, three services because there wasn't enough room to house everybody in the single setting. He would preach to them the gospel. They would be excited. But when he'd leave the pulpit, he would go home 
and fight with depression. Spurgeon says, I would love to go to church on Sunday. When I do, I loved it because going up the steps reminded me of ascending to Mount Sinai. And when I got to Mount Sinai, there was nobody there but just me and God. When I looked out and saw the people, I was behind the mask of God. And I knew no one could see my depression. But when I finished my sermon, I had to descend back down to the foot of the mountain. And I had to go back and face reality. The real person of who I was. The mask had to come off. And there may be one of you in here this morning, you come to church on Sunday looking as good as good can be looking, but you're behind a mask. You're depressed for a number of things. Your job could depress you. Now, here's another thing. Religion tells us if you got a job, you ought to be grateful. And that's true. But that doesn't alter the fact that on the job, some people get on my nerves. Okay, you ain't got to admit it. I got it. I already know it anyway. Hey, I've worked among people long enough to know that I've come and got so angry with people that I had to leave the job, get in the car, go down to the store, get a Coca-Cola, hang out in the front seat for a while. Secretary called me asking where you at because I need to ask something. Now, I'll be back in about 30 minutes. Ain't going anywhere, just to the store. But I need to unwind because someone, here's a good Christian word, has teed me off. Now you know what I really want to say, don't you? But I can't say it because we got children, we got children chilling in the sanctuary. And might, might I add to, for that in church, you know, we, we do that. We tee each other off. I know y'all think because we're in a sacred space, we always... Smile at no, that's not always genuine. Our smiles are not always genuine. I know you're not smiling at me honestly all the time. And if you don't know, you're here to know it now, I ain't always smiling at you genuinely. <laughs> One thing I try to do is prove to you, at least convey to you so you can see that I'm a human being that has frailties. You're the ones who take that position as preacher and put it up next to God. I don't. I, I don't do that. Because I already know what you don't know, and that is behind the mask, what I'm dealing with. And I also know that if I'm honest with you, I have a like nature just like you got. And so whatever that issue is, I'm working out my soul's salvation with fear and trembling just like you are. And we would be better off in terms of helping ourselves escape the grip of depression if we'd be honest and help each other as opposed to being critical of each other because we have a depressed context. But I don't mind it if we have issues in church in the sense of we blow each other out and call each other name. That's what family members do. And you know, we, you may be a different family person. I mean, y'all might have a different family context than I do, but that's what we do. We cuss each other out, lie on each other, whole nine yards. And then when a crisis come, we make up. 
we make up because that's when the family has to bind together and whatever the issue is, it has to go out the window. Now, it might come back a few days later, but in that moment, we gotta handle it. But generally, it doesn't. It doesn't because by the time we get through the crisis, that crisis almost has helped erase what's created the conflict. And if someone in the family is suffering from depression, it behooves each of us to find out why are you like this and what do I have to do to help you get out of this state? And we should know each other well enough to know when something is not right. You know when you see that person's demeanor, their actions, their behavior, something not right. I might need to make another phone call, I may need to go by and see what's going on. And they may try to block you out. Keep on pushing particularly if your spirit is telling you something's not right. Because the worst thing you want to happen is you get a phone call a few days later that they found him on the floor, in the living room, in the bedroom, and apparently they've taken their life. And you know how you and I are going to be. We're going to be like, oh, man, if I had just went by, I started to go by. But I said, no, I'm going to leave it alone. Don't leave it alone. Even let them tell you, leave me alone. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm, I'm just as serious as I can be. I'd rather for you to tell me, leave you alone then I have to walk behind, walk behind you at the hearse, going to the gravesite. These are the behaviors that depression births. And Elijah, the great prophet, suffers from depression. I can't believe it. But Elijah is no different than us. He got scared even after being coached by God. And let me give you this one point and then we got to go. There are a couple of things I think contribute to Elijah's depression. One is his political context. You read 1 Kings chapter 16, and by the way, the backdrop for Elijah's life it's 1 Kings chapter 16 all the way to chapter 19. But 1 Kings chapter 16, beginning at verse 29, I believe it is, we're introduced to the context that Elijah has to live in. It's a political context that's difficult because of who the king is, Ahab. Ahab comes from a stock of kings which the Bible says did evil in the sight of the Lord. Each king, you read through 1 Kings 16, each king, the Bible says, that king did worse than the previous king, which meant that evil became progressive in Elijah's society. Now, James tells us that Elijah is a man of prayer. You go back to James chapter 5, verse 17, it says that Elijah earnestly prayed. So Elijah had this habit of believing that prayer would get him through a lot of stuff. It's a good habit to have. 
an ongoing conversation with God. And what I like about when you read the prayers of the Bible is, although they give an impression that there's a certain manner in which you have to pray, how many of you have learned that there's no special manner? All you got to do is just know what that name is. And just calling on that name enables you to be able to function no matter what the context. So I always tell people, you talk about how do I pray? Well, how do you talk? That's all you need to understand. How do you talk? Because God, I think, is so big that no matter how I talk, he can handle it. And on top of that, God doesn't look for large words to come from me. God just looking for the sincerity of my heart. That's why our ancestors said, Father, I stretch my hands unto thee. No other help do I know. For if you withdraw yourself from me, where am I going to go? Nowhere. So prayer is about simply how am I going to talk with God? I talk with him how the way I talk with him. Lord, it's me again. Same problem I had yesterday. I got it one more time. Tomorrow, Lord, it's me again. Same problem I had yesterday, but I'm back here again. Next day, Lord, it's me again. Same problem I had yesterday, but I think I'm getting a little better, but I'm back here again. Because that's the way I talk with God. That's the way you can talk with God. Because God is not looking for big, large prayers that's impressive. God is looking for how sincere is your heart. Are you really crying out to me where you are? And do you really understand how powerful prayer can be? So prayer was a priority in Elijah's life. But Elijah was a, prayer, was a powerful man. Verse 17 says, and not only Elijah earnestly pray but he prayed that it wouldn't rain now that's that's a heck of a prayer that it wouldn't rain and guess what it didn't rain for three and a half years then it says in verse 18 when he prayed again the skies opened up and it poured out rain that's a mighty powerful prayer life that this brother got. It seems to me that when you got a prayer life like that, how in the world could depression ever get a foothold in your life? If you can cry out, Lord, don't let it rain for three and a half years and God stops the rain, that means that whatever comes out my pipe, if I'm believing it by faith and I call on the name of the Lord, God's going to do something that works in my favor. And if I tell the rain don't rain and then turn around and say, okay, now you can rain now and it starts raining again, that means I got some power on the inside of me. Not power that I have developed myself, but power I have attained because of my willingness to seek the face of God. That's the reason why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these other things that you're going to need will be added unto you. And I need some prayer power. In this political climate that we have, you need some prayer power. But 1 Kings chapter 16 through 19 tell me that Elijah was not only a man of prayer and a man of power, but Elijah had a problem. And Elijah's problem was Jezebel scared him into depression. And his political climate, because of who Ahab was, 
Let me read this text for you and then I'm done. I'm, I'm going to have to pick it up on next week because I don't want to leave you too far out here because y'all know me. It'd be 1.30, 2 o'clock if I get about this joint. The Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30, that Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And then it says, and it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam is the king of Israel in its divided state. And Jeroboam did something that no other king had done, at least for a long time. That was, he moved the nation from worshiping as a monotheistic god, God himself, to back to idolatry gods. First thing he did, he instructed the people, don't worship God anymore. He gave them two golden calves. Now, you know you read Exodus 20. Exodus 20 tells us that the Bible says, God says, thou shalt have no other gods before me and don't make any molden images of me. You know what happened before when they made the golden calf when Moses up in Mount Sinai and Aaron is down in the valley with them. They tricked Aaron. Well, they really tricked him. They coached him into creating a golden calf. And when Moses comes out of Sinai, he wants to know what's going on. What have y'all done? And Aaron said, it wasn't me, it's the people. They wanted the calf, so I had to give them what they wanted. And they took all the gold and made a golden calf. They substituted where Moses was because they said Moses, he was taking too long to talk with God. Here's a word for you. Don't ever think God is taking too long. Delayed doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to be delivered. It just means that God is working all things together for the good. And sometimes God delays because God wants to unveil what really is in your heart. So when Moses is up in Sinai worshiping and communicating with God to get what's called the Ten Commandments, the tablets, Israel's down in the valley who's impatient, can't wait on God, making themselves a God. Be careful because your depression can cause you to substitute the God of your salvation with a God that will appear to be your salvation. Be careful about that. And when they made this golden calf, when Moses comes out of the mountain, he is so angry he throws the tablets down. And you know the story. It splits the ground. And Moses said, everybody come over here. And everybody who's not on God's side, just stay right where you are. There's a penalty for staying there. And the penalty was you're going to suffer death. And you know who rose up and came on the side of God? I told him this morning, I think he thought it was humorous. The gangster tribe of Israel. See, there was one tribe in Israel that really were gangsters by nature. I told you we got a like nature. Didn't I tell you that? They were well known for their use of the blade and for their use of assassinating people. They were called the tribe of Levi. And guess who God selected because they stood up and fought on behalf when no one else would and come on God's side? He chose the Levites to be the priests of Israel. How are you going to choose gangsters 
to be preachers of the gospel. I'm talking about gangster preachers. That's because grace doesn't matter where it finds you, can transform you. There should be some witnesses up here today. I'm glad that I'm not what I used to be, but thank God for grace that saved me and made me what I'm becoming right now. So God chose the Levites, and it's the Levites who were destined only to be the priests of Israel. Jeroboam decided that he would change that. Jeroboam decided he would change what God has done. Jeroboam decided that he would change what God has orchestrated. Jeroboam decided he would change what God has consecrated. He chose priests from everybody. And Israel followed. He changed the worship days. He told them, it's inconvenient for us to follow the feast days. We'll pick our own. And Jeroboam also changed the place of worship. He said, Jerusalem is too far for us to travel. We'll go to Dan and Bethel. We'll have church there. And he set up a calf at each one. What's the sin of Jeroboam? He leads the people to idolatry. Be careful who leads you out of the presence of God and the will of God and the way of God who artificially helps you think that you're being healed when in reality you're not being healed at all. You're being sucked into a context. Politically, Jeroboam, his actions had become contagious and Ahab adopted them. Worse, says the text, Ahab married a woman by the name of Jezebel. Now I don't think it's the fact that he married a woman it's the fact that he married Jezebel, who from the Sidonian family represents idolatry. Look at the text. He, he married her who went to serve Baal and worshipped him. Now there is something to be said of when someone has a different state of worship than you do because it may be conflicting. Look at the next verse. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab moved Israel more toward Baal. In our political context. We're seeing more and more dark and evil behavior in our political context. We are witnessing without question some of the most unfamiliar behavior. People are struggling with uncertainty and they were struggling with uncertainty in Israel because there was no rain. When there's no rain, there's no crops. When there's no crops, there's no money. When there's no money, there's no food. People struggle. We're witnessing an uncertainty because what was promised as a resurgence of jobs is not really happening. There is not only that, but there is unfulfilled expectation. Attainable goals, they can't come to pass because the economy 
in the nation is shot. Unforgiveness, it's reigning supreme. You can hear it in our own political climate. Elijah had to face it because he knew that there was unforgiveness among the people because they had been lied to by Ahab. And unconditional love. People want to be accepted without being pre-qualified. Can you love me for who I am and what I am? We're struggling in America to understand that because there's a faction of us that want to pre-qualify. You have to be a certain way before you can be said to be loved by God. That ain't what John 3.16 tells me. It says, for God so loved the world. That means that everyone, everything that's encompassed in that, I would argue good and evil, God says I love it. So much so that I gave my only. I put me on the cross. And I didn't qualify who had to get salvation. I said, who so ever, for God so loved that he gave his only begotten, that whosoever, 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 and I'm going to argue that means black, white, green, purple, male, female, gay, straight, that means whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's Bible. Now we can argue about how we want to interpret that, but remember no one is instantaneously converted. I know you want to believe that because that's what Orthodox Christianity told you. No one is instantaneously converted. If it was, we wouldn't still have the like nature of the struggle. I'm a believer that when we get, when God, when we call, ask the Lord into our life, he saves us on his work because it's already done. But that's why you and I got work to do. Because unearthing some of the stuff that we had before Jesus, that's a long haul. And it's a lot of work. And you and I know without question, it's a journey. But God's grace and mercy and strength and word and the power of the Holy Spirit helps us when I've fallen down to get back up. Don't raise your hand. Don't even look to the left. Just look straight at me. Some of us came here this morning. We fell down this morning for we even got to church. We fell down last night. But you know why we're here? Because of the restoring power of God the forgiving love of God and God who doesn't make us pre-qualified before you receive his salvation. My prayer today is that you would take a look at what's going on around us politically. Think about the prophet Elijah and what he struggled with to sort of coexist in that setting and what we're going to have to struggle with to not only help coexist, but to help change. Because if we don't, it does not yet appear 
what it shall be. Every head bowed in prayer.